turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19. Jesus, remember, last time we were together, had been talking to His disciples about forgiveness. And we focused on that need for the church to take these things very seriously. I asked a question at the end of that service, dare I set limits on my forgiveness of others? And the answer to that should be and is no. I do not dare set limits because Jesus set no limits. When He told Peter not seven times, but seventy times seven, His emphasis was on the impossibility of keeping track of how many times you are willing to forgive those who have offended you. Now in chapter 19, he's moving on from that territory in the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. Finally, on his final journey around the Sea of Galilee to the other side, the eastern side, and then down on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And he is going to enter into the territory that is overseen by Herod Antipas. Territory of Perea, just outside of Judea. It's going to take several weeks before he finally gets to Jerusalem, but that's his goal, to have finally arrived at Jerusalem to complete the task that has been set before him, and that is so that he can go to the cross and die for the sins of mankind. He's on the way. He knows the timing. Everything is on time as far as God the Father is concerned, and Jesus does nothing unless the Father tells him. He's on his way to do that which God had already made him aware of. From the very beginning, he knew his destiny. In fact, the writer of Hebrews tells us that he endured the cross, despising the shame for the joy that was His beyond those things. He endured the cross. That was a physical enduring. The pain, the suffering that He had to endure, all the torment, all the various things that they did to Him physically, He endured the cross. He despised the shame of it. Naked on the cross, He despised that's an emotional response to those things that they were going to do to Him so that He could suffer on the cross to the effect that you would not have to. He's on his way. And chapter 19 tells us this very fact. It says in verse 1, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, that is, the territory of Perea. And great multitudes followed him and he healed them there. So he's still doing these things that he had been doing for these last three plus years, healing the sick, having mercy on those, compassion on those who came to him for a healing touch. They knew that he would be able to do so. And he continued to do that even to the very end. But Matthew now turns to these events. As he comes to that territory of Perea near Judea, Pharisees and scribes find out that he's on the move, heading in that direction, and they greet him there in Perea with a question. It's a test. It's a deliberate attempt by these men to stumble him, to find some way to put in the minds of the people who were following him that 
He's not the one they think He is. They don't want the populace to believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. They don't want them to follow this man who they have rejected. The reason is because of envy and jealousy. He was taking away from them what used to be theirs. They were popular at one time. Now Jesus is. They were the ones that people would go to. Now Jesus is. They didn't like it. They were offended by Him. It's going to get much worse. But here, in this territory, on the eastern side of the River Jordan, the Pharisees came to Him, it says in verse 3, testing Him and saying to Him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now, they're asking that because there is something with regard to divorce that is written in the first five books of the Bible. In fact, it's Deuteronomy 24, where Moses gives the commandments of the Lord to his people Israel. And in verse 1 of chapter 24 of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses lays out something of a principle that they would be obliging themselves to, because after all, it is Moses that through the Lord God is giving these words to the people of Israel so that they can serve the Lord in every situation. And that particular passage talks about a bill of divorcement. Now, in that passage, Moses isn't giving a command. He is setting a principle that is basically for the purpose of protecting the woman. In that day, in that culture, even in Jesus' time, both in the Hebrew culture and Roman and Greek cultures, a woman did not have a whole lot of, well, balance in the way things are. They were looked down upon by men as a secondary kind of group of individuals, and they were used by men in a lot of very, very evil ways, and they had to subject themselves to those things because they had no alternatives. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, Moses is telling the men of Israel that if your wife does something that you find unclean, you can then give her a bill of divorcement and send her out of your home. The question, though, arises... What did Moses mean by unclean? And that's a very, very serious problem for the people of Israel. And they were viewed primarily on both sides of that question. One, the view of a rabbi named Shimei, who said only sexual impurity, adultery, fornication is justification for a divorce. On the other side, Hillel, another rabbi, said, no, 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 that's, that's not what unclean means. It's anything that you see in your wife that you're not happy with, you can then write her a bill of divorcement and send her out of your house because of that. You could have, have a complaint against her for saying something in public that she shouldn't have said or even cooking your meal in a way that you didn't appreciate. There were many, many things that Hillel said were justification for Divorce. These are two great leaders of Israel in the time of Jesus who disputed these things 
and there were people on both sides of those arguments. Moses, again, didn't write that for the purpose of setting a, a confusing state of uncertainty in Israel regarding divorce. Moses wrote that bill of divorcement clause for the purpose of allowing the wife to be able to go back into the community having a bill of divorcement in her hand to prove that she's not outside of a church, outside of a home as a harlot, but rather that she was kicked out by her husband. That bill of divorcement gave her the right to be available for anybody else to take her as his wife. If she didn't have that bill of divorcement, she would have like a scarlet letter on her back saying, I am an adulteress. That's the way the society operated, and that's the way that Moses wrote to the people of Israel to prevent that sort of heinous thing against the poor woman who was cast out of a home. He goes on to talk about in that same passage that if that second man who has taken her as a wife dies or wants to divorce her, either way, she's out again. If she's got the bill of divorcement, she can continue to remarry. If that man dies, she can remarry. But she can't remarry the first husband. That was just the way Moses wrote that. It had nothing to do with Moses giving a command to write a bill of divorcement. It wasn't a command. It was a series of teachings with regard to protecting the woman that Moses had initiated in the book of Deuteronomy. These men, the Pharisees and scribes, come to Jesus, and again, look at the question they're asking. In verse 3, the Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, And here's where I was coming from earlier. Have you not read? Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? Instead of arguing with either respect of Hillel or Shemai, Jesus brings them beyond that time of Moses to the time of creation, back to the book of Genesis. Jesus isn't going to enter into that conflict. He's going to show them from the Word of God, this is what God's purpose and intent was originally. And he gives this in response to their question, is it lawful? Jesus is going to give them this answer because they weren't expecting him to be able to get out of putting himself on one side of the issue or another and thereby causing many of his followers to turn away from him. But his response, because he is God, was perfect. Always has been, always is, always will be. Have you not read... And again, note that he says, He who made them, he's the one who made them. He who made them, at the beginning, made them male and female. Gender neutrality, gender fluidity, genders 
don't really mean much anymore in our society, do they? There's at least 95 or so different definitions of gender that you can look at over the web if you happen to do a research on it. And gender fluidity is basically saying that none of us are neither male nor female. We can be anything we want to be. We can be anything we think we are. All of those things are a direct, a direct assault against what God has said. He made them male and female, man and woman. Done. Closed issue. It is settled. God's word is true. Let every man be a liar. And they are. And so we have in our society a conflicting situation before us. If we, as a church, allow ourselves to endorse what the world around us is saying, then we are conflicting with what God's Word says. Are we willing to do so? Have you not read? Do you understand what I'm saying? If you hadn't read that, if you hadn't known about it, then you could easily be swayed by the public opinion. Oh, well, that sounds pretty reasonable. After all, the great scholars of our day and all of the colleges are endorsing this thing. Why shouldn't it be right? What, what difference does it make? It makes a world of difference. Because, again, it is in conflict with what God's Word declares. Have you not read? Think about that. Concentrate on those things that Jesus is here saying. Because it's such important teaching. Have you not read? He says to them, they would have been the ones who had read. They were the teachers of Israel. They were the scholars of the day. Of course they had read those words in Genesis. They had read that in chapter 1 of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 27. He made them male and female. That's what the Word of God says. They certainly would have read that. But it wasn't anything that they applied correctly until this conversation. And then in verse 5 he says, And for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's quoting from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Have you not read, A man shall leave his father and his mother, the implication his father is male, his mother is female, and be joined to his wife. The implication is he is man and she is woman. And they too shall be one. There's a union that takes place in that culmination of the marriage between a man and a woman that cannot happen with any other kind of inappropriate union that they think is legitimate in the present hour. A man cannot be unioned with a man. Nor can a woman be unioned with a woman. Even the plumbing industry tells us that. You have to have a male and a female component when you're connecting a pipe. There are compression unions that can do that without the male-female combination. But I submit to you, compression unions are temporary. And they are not what was intended by the Lord. They've made such 
a terrible mistake. And I'm not sure that there's any turning back from it. To be honest with you, I think that we are headed down a path of destruction as a result of mankind's opinions that they have allowed to be propagated and believed by the multitudes of people. But not the church. Please, Lord God, don't let it be so in the church. Let there be at least a remnant who says the Word of God is true. And I stand on the Word of God. And I am willing to ask the question, have you not read? Verse 6 says, So then, Jesus still talking. They are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Those are very famous words that we hear in almost every wedding ceremony. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Let no man separate. God has said they become one flesh. Paul also recognizes that fact when he talks about if you, as a man, go into a harlot and have a sexual relationship with her, you become one with that harlot. It's the same principle. You have united yourself with that woman as a man, and the woman has united herself with that man as a woman, and that union that has taken place is a spiritual union that is recognized by God as being the valid, appropriate situation in that arrangement that you have just entered into. As far as marriage is concerned, you know that in the Bible, in the Old Testament, from the very beginning, a man and a woman came together in the same tent, and they come out of that tent the next morning, and they are husband and wife. There was no special ceremony. There was no special arrangements other than the fact that perhaps some of it was coordinated by the parents. In the case of Abraham, he sent his servant, Eliehaz, all the way to the land of Ur to get Isaac a wife because he wanted to make sure that she was of his family. By the Spirit of God, he went there and he got Rebekah and brought Rebekah to Isaac. And Isaac was standing in the field and seeing a caravan coming from afar off. He realizes that's Abraham's servant. And he sees the woman who is veiled, riding on a camel beside the servant. And when she comes to him, he takes her immediately into his tent and she becomes his wife. Wonderful picture. Wonderful story. Isaac had one wife. That's the way it was intended from the beginning. Abraham, his father, well, for most of his life, had just one wife. And then after Sarah died, he picked up a couple of women. In addition to Hagar, his concubine, and had more children by them. Wait wait a minute. Abraham, the father of our faith? Didn't God say... A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, not to his wives, but to his wife, implying one wife is enough. As a matter of fact, back in Genesis, in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, he made them male and female. He could have made multiple women for Adam if it was his intent for Adam to have more than one wife. But he made one woman out of his own flesh. It's pretty clear that God's purpose was one man, one woman. 
Well, Abraham didn't follow that very well. Isaac did. Some of the others did. I think Jacob would have. Isaac's son, Jacob. Remember the story? He went to work for his uncle. And he loved one of Laban's daughters. He wanted to marry her. Laban said, okay, work for me for seven years and you can have her. Well, he did so. He agreed to that. And when the time of that coming together, where the woman that he thought was going to be his wife came into his tent, it wasn't her at all. It wasn't Rachel. It was Leah. Now what's Jacob going to do? He loved Rachel. And he's got Leah. And he's consummated the wedding. He can't back out of it now. So he agrees for another seven years to take Rachel. So now he's got two wives. In his case, it probably really wasn't his intent to have more than one wife. But it just happened that way and he couldn't do anything about it. But as time went on, Leah was bearing all kinds of children and Rachel was not. So Rachel came up with an idea that was similar to what Sarah had done with Abraham. Why don't you take my maiden and use her in my place to raise up a child? And so Jacob agreed. Now he's got three wives. Well, Leah got upset and she stopped bearing children. So she got her maiden to take her place. And now Jacob has four wives. It's getting complicated. It's getting well out of hand, isn't it? It shouldn't be that way, should it be? God said one man, one woman. Why isn't it throughout the Word of God that that is adhered to? Well, the answer is given by Jesus. But before we get to that answer, I just want a couple of more examples to kind of bring home the message. David, king of Israel, by the time he had had a relationship with Bathsheba in his 50s, he already had nine wives. Why did he need another? Plus concubines. A whole harem full. Didn't stop there. What about his son Solomon? 700 wives and 300 concubines. Come on, Solomon. What are you doing? What is the purpose of all of this? It's obviously not God's will, but God apparently, did nothing, at least as far as we know, to stop it. God allowed it. Why did God allow it? For one reason and one reason alone. And Jesus talks about that. They asked this question in verse 7. He says, uh, they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? Why did God do this through Moses? Moses, they said, commanded that a certificate of divorce be given to put her away. And again, that's not really what happened, but that's how they've worded it, so that the people around hearing these arguments would say, yeah, Jesus, how are you going to answer this question? If you answer it this way, on Hillel's side, you'll have all the Shemai's followers leave. And if you answer it on Shemai's side, all the followers of Hillel, Hillel will leave. What are you going to do with this Jesus, verse 8 says, He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, 
permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. So Moses, with the instruction of God the Father, permitted them to do this. Why? Because of the hardness of their heart. Sclerosis. That's hardening. Cardia, the heart. Sclerocardia in the Greek. Two words put together mean hardness of hearts. I can't tell you what it is in the Hebrew language, but the implication is the same. They hardened their hearts. No other can ever take credit for it but ourselves. When we do it our way, our hearts are hardened. And that is what Jesus is saying is the reason that Moses permitted, not Moses commanded, but Moses permitted these things to take place. So if he permitted them to divorce their wives, he also permitted them to have more than one wife, and he's not going to commend them for it, certainly. But he lets them do it because of the hardness of their hearts. That's a scary thought. That implies that God lets us do anything we want to do and we can get away with it if we want. The Apostle Paul addresses that, by the way, in the book of 1 Corinthians. And I wish that most of you would be interested in coming to our Thursday night meetings. The Zoom meetings, you can do it from home. It's convenient. It's not a place where we're going to be taking an extra offering or anything. It's just free. So, But in our Thursday evening studies, we are in the book of 1 Corinthians. And Paul tells us there on more than one occasion, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are expedient. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. What Paul is saying is, as a believer in Christ, I can do anything I choose to do, but I have to remember that whatever I choose must be in regard to how it affects others. I have liberty, but if I take my liberty and it supersedes my love for another, then it is wrong for me to do so. All things are lawful. I'm not obligated by any legal system to do anything, but because I love my fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord, I will not take advantage of that which is lawful for me. Jesus is saying something very similar here. Because of the hardness of your heart, he allowed it. It's not that it's good. It's not good. But because of the hardness of your heart, he says, go ahead, have it your way. There are consequences to this, but have your way. Well, he's now talking about the marriage relationship, but it goes further than just between a husband and a wife, doesn't it? And by the way, his discussion in the previous section that we looked at last week with regard to forgiveness plays into this particular situation that he's developing here. He says in verse 9, listen carefully, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. What Jesus is saying is, look, if you guys can't get it together, if you can't forgive one another, you're going to separate. 
but that's not God's best for you. And if you do separate, you have entered into a situation that is not going to be very helpful for either party. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. It's plain and simple. Jesus is saying whatever the sexual impurity might be, it could be adultery, it could be also fornication, which is kind of like adultery except that you're not doing it with a married person. It opens the door wide to all kinds of various impurities with regard to sexuality. And that word that is used in the Greek language that is the original language in which this was written, is the word that we get our word pornographic. It's the Greek word pornea. It means that, pornography, what you see with your eyes, sexual impurity. Think about that, men especially, but women also. What movies are you watching? Where are you going in your searches and your websites? What are you reading? in the novels that you choose. They all lead to disaster. And we need to take every step that we are able to take as believers in God to distance ourselves from such things. How does divorce happen? And frankly, many of us have dealt with divorce, either our own life or in the lives of family members, we've seen divorce, what it does, how it impacts others. Divorce, like any other sin, is sin. It's no different than murder in regard to how it impacts your relationship with God. It is forgivable, as all sins are forgivable, except for the one sin of rejecting Christ. So if you have been through a divorce, or if you are considering divorce, no, it's not something that you will be condemned for by the Lord. You can go to Him and ask for His forgiveness, and He is willing to grant that forgiveness, because He always forgives, not just 490 times, but every time. But we need to go to the Lord for forgiveness. So if you have entered into that situation where you are considering divorce, realize that that is indeed a sin. And if you go through with it, there are consequences. If you have been divorced, don't you think for a moment that God condemns you to hell because of that. You as a believer have been set free from the burden of sin. All of those things in your past have been wiped clean. The slate has been completely wiped clean. Know that for a fact you have not any reason to think that that one decision is going to ruin your relationship with God. It doesn't. If you have sought the Lord for forgiveness for your past sins, you know that those sins have been forgiven. That's just the fact. But, what about those who might be thinking, this isn't working out the way it should, And maybe it's time to break it apart. When did the problem start? Last week? Not very likely. How long ago was it when you first began that tension between husband and wife to cause a breaking up of that marriage relationship? When you first got married, 
there was a flame burning in your hearts for one another. Wasn't that wonderful? Think back about that time when that flame was burning so brightly in your lives, both of you. But there came a time, over time, when that flame began to diminish. And then you find yourself in a place where the flame doesn't exist anymore. It's cold and dark. Dreariness sets in. You want out. That's how it starts. It didn't just happen. It's over time. And my suggestion to anybody that comes to me for any marriage counseling at all, with regard to those who are struggling with their marriage, I will ask them, when did this begin? And most of the time they can't answer that exactly. Oh, it's been a long time. Okay? Before it began, what was it like between you? Oh, we were just so happy together. What changed? That's a great place to start. But then you need to also ask them, remember back at that first time of enjoying one another in such wonderful bliss. What can you do to reignite that flame? And if they're not willing, then it's not going to happen. And I've counseled in both directions people who have been not willing to make any changes, or at least one of them wasn't. But when they do come to that place, and that I've seen it happen, when they come to that place, they realize, you know what? Maybe we can. Let's start with maybe a date night. Let's, let's have some fun together. I confess to you that in my early marriage, Sandy and I were not doing well. We weren't Christians at the time. And there was a time when perhaps that might have ended up becoming grounds for divorce. It didn't happen. But you know one of the things that we did to make our relationship better? When we both realized we've got to do something about this, we decided to go to Disney World. That's all. We had fun together. We found something that we both were enjoying and together we were enjoying it and we realized, you know, there is still something left in us. And we've nourished it and we managed to get through it. And then we got saved and oh, wow, what a wonderful thing it's been. Well, maybe for me, but... Anyway, it's been good. 48 plus years I've been married to this one woman and I am so happy that I did that so many years ago and that she was willing to say yes. But that might not have happened if we hadn't taken steps to correct what was wrong. God hates divorce. And this passage that we just read in verse 9, some of your translations don't have the latter part of that verse which says, and whoever marries her is divorced, or who is divorced commits adultery. Now, that is in some Translations not added because they would argue that it isn't in the original text. But it is in, it's very much in line with what Jesus said much earlier on. We find it in the Sermon on the Mount. Back in chapter 5 of Matthew's Gospel, verse 32 says, Jesus speaking, But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. So he said it there. And it's in all translations there. 
Jesus hasn't changed his mind on this issue. Jesus is very firm, always says exactly the same thing, because it is the truth. But not only is it so in the New Testament, turn with me to Malachi. It's the last book of the Old Testament, so you're in the book of Matthew. Just turn to the left until you get to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. Turn to chapter 2, beginning with verse 14. The Lord God is confronting Israel with many of their sins, and they've asked a question, how is this so? And he answers them in verse 14, he says, You say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. A marriage relationship is a covenant relationship, people of God. A covenant is something that God takes very seriously. In the Word of God, we see several covenants that are made between God and mankind. And this relationship that is being described here is a covenant that men make with women at the point of marriage. And it is a covenant that is intended to be for life. He goes on to say in verse 15, But he did not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit, Or he's asking the question, did he not make them one? And the answer is supposedly, yes, of course he did. And why not? He seeks godly offspring. That's why God made them one. He wants their children to be godly. One of the reasons for men and women to come together is for the propagation of mankind. And it's not just any children. It's godly children that God wants And so it's so very important that a Christian man marry a Christian woman. And they would have then godly children as they are raised up in a godly family. That's the purpose of God. That's His intent. It doesn't always work out as well as we would love it, but it's God's purpose and intent. He goes on to say, Therefore, take heed to your spirit, let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. He hates divorce. So God is saying in no uncertain terms that this marriage that you have entered into is a holy marriage that God endorses. And he wants it to last. Going back to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19. After having said these words to the Pharisees and scribes, now his disciples, remember Peter and James and John? They were there listening to all of this. His disciples said to him, verse 10, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, All cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. So Jesus is here saying to his disciples, you know what? Marriage isn't for everybody. It's hard. You're right. 
He doesn't dispute their statement. The statement was, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But Jesus is saying, that's probably so for some people, not all. For some people, it's right for them to seek a wife. It's right for a woman to seek a husband. Paul agrees with everything that Jesus has said in this passage. And again, I refer to you back in our study in 1 Corinthians. Let's go there, chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, and we'll finish our study here this morning with the reading of this passage. Jesus said, not everybody can handle it. And he mentions eunuchs. You remember what a eunuch is? A eunuch is a man who has been either made to be able not to have children by being castrated, or perhaps was born with some abnormality that was so that he couldn't perform the sexual act, or he chose to so he could worship the Lord more closely, more intimately. Those three different settings that Jesus is describing with regard to eunuchs is basically saying that certain individuals either can't or don't want to get married. Paul addresses that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Read on with me in verse 1 of chapter 7. He says, Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, the Corinthians had written a letter to Paul and asking him several questions, and this was one of them, having to do with the marriage relationship. It is good for a man not to touch a woman, Paul says. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. What's Paul saying? One man, one woman. He doesn't deviate from what the Word of God declares. One's enough, men and women. There's no reason for you to want an extra man around the house. That would be disastrous. Then he says in verse 3, Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. In other words, enjoy one another. You both benefit from the relationship that is an intimate relationship that belongs in the marriage alone. He says in verse 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have any authority over his own body, but the wife does. So Paul is saying, look, stop thinking about yourself, your own needs. Think about the partner's needs first. That's always good in the marriage relationship. And if you have issues with one another, don't let those issues interfere with your intimacy with your mate. He says in verse 5, do not deprive one another except with consent for a time. In other words, I'm angry at him. I'm not letting him near me. That's the wrong approach, ladies. Or men, I'll show her. I don't need her. I'll find somebody else. Sorry. That does not work. Don't deprive one another. But instead, only if it's for a particular reason. So that you may yourselves commit yourselves to fasting and prayer and then come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. He knows all of us are built the same way. We've got enzymes. We've got hormones. We've got all kinds of things that basically will move us in a direction of either right or wrong. Paul says don't let your emotions drive you. Don't let your passion drive you. 
In verse 6 he says, But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. This isn't anything that God has said directly, but Paul is saying from his own understanding of what God has said and what God has made him to be as an apostle for us, the church. He says these things, I wish that all men were even as I myself. Paul, at that time, was without a wife. We don't know if he was married. Many believe he was. He either lost his wife by death or she left him. We don't know that. It's speculative. But we know that at this writing he was without a wife. But he says, I wish that all men were even as I, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. What Paul is saying, I agree with what Jesus said. If you are able, if you have this gift, then that is what you should be doing. If you're single and you have the gift for being single, then stay single. If you are single and you don't have that gift and you're burning with a passion, find a woman, find a man, get married. A woman if you're a man, a man if you're a woman. I wish that all men were like me, but, he says in verse 8, I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. If they are able to, if they have the gift, then let it be so. They can be beneficial in the church. They won't be distracted by another person in the relationship. That's what Paul will ultimately be getting at later on in the chapter. We're not going to go there, but that's what he's pointing at. He says in verse 9, But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So Paul lays it out very clearly. Jesus was saying the very same things in a slightly different way. But the bottom line is this. Marriage was given by God. It's a good thing. Remember in the creation... For six days, God created. And every time he finished his creative work, at the end of the day, he said, it is good. But on the sixth day, when he created Adam, what did he say? It is very good. Adam was made in God's image. Adam was the most important component of all of what God had created. And when he finished that creative work, he said, it is very good. He was pleased. But then, later on, after Adam has been in the garden for a period of time, Adam doesn't have a mate like all the animals that Adam sees around him. And that's when God says, it is not good that man should be alone. Everything else was, it is good, or it is very good. But with regard to Adam's being alone, God said, it is not good that man should be alone. So out of Adam's side, whatever he took out of Adam's side is what he created Eve with and brought her to Adam. And Adam said, Wow, it is very, very good. Oh, that's not in the Bible, but that's, I believe, what Adam said. He saw Eve, and she was, by the way, the most beautiful woman in the whole world. Yeah, that was easy. She was the only one, but that's beside the point. For Adam, he saw in her something that he desperately needed. He could no longer be without a mate. And that's what God did for him. God made him a mate that was meat for him, perfect for him, appropriate for him in every way. And then she was deceived. 
You feel the darkness coming over you? She was deceived. She didn't sin. Not that way that Adam sinned. But she was deceived. Adam sinned because when she gave him the fruit to eat, he could have said, no, God has said, I will not. She would have died. He would have lived on without sin. But what happened? Adam took her the fruit and he ate. Why would he do such a thing? Direct disobedience to what God had told him. Direct disobedience is sin. God has said, when you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. What was it that drove Adam to that conclusion that he could do this? His attractiveness to Eve overwhelmed him, outweighed the cost. The judgment came. Eve said, because of what you have done, childbirth is not going to be easy. He cursed the serpent for deceiving Eve. To Adam, he said, from now on, things aren't going to grow for you the way they have been. Thorns and thistles will be all around. By the sweat of your brow, you will work. Punishment for doing what was not right in God's sight. He hasn't changed. He's still the same God yesterday, today, and forever. Do any of you think that having read these words from Matthew's Gospel, that God thinks any differently today than he did then with regard to the marriage relationship? God forbid it.